Hey guys, my name is Mavi and I've spent the last 14 years in the plastic surgery and beauty industry, working alongside top board certified plastic surgeons. In that time, I've helped thousands of women in their surgical journey. My passion to educate and help women feel empowered is what led to what we now know as the Big Butts No Lies podcast. Join in on the fun as I talk to plastic surgery experts, friends, and real life patients about all things plastic surgery. Should be fun. Hey guys, do I have the episode for you? Y'all know that I'm always searching for the best plastic surgeons. And the way that I found is the best way to find the best plastic surgeons is by referral. So our guest today was very highly recommended by one of his patients, Dr. Luis Macias. He's a double board certified plastic surgeon located in Marina del Rey, California. He's also the director of aesthetic surgery at the University of Southern California Plastic and Reconstructive Department, right? <laughs> Division of Division. Surgery. Yeah. yeah. And he's also a Mexican-American plastic surgeon, which you don't really see that often. I'm so excited and I feel like we are very blessed to have him on the show today. Dr. Macias, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you. Okay, so facial rejuvenation is a topic that a woman of any age can be, you know, interested in. What we're going to talk about today is the advances in facial rejuvenation and modern techniques. We're going to ask Dr. Macias a lot of questions and I know he'll have a lot of answers for us. We're I'm excited. So am I. I'm going to get started. So you guys know, I always like to find the procedures that the surgeon is very passionate about. And that's really when you get the good, the good, juicy, you know, information when they really love what they're talking about. And for Dr. Macias, it happens to be facelifts and facelifts are kind of a whole different animal than any of the other stuff that we talk about on this show. So this is not BBL talk. This is not any of the liposuction tummy tuck talk. This is face. And for face, you have to get it right the first time without a doubt. And because of that, you have to go to the right people. And when we find the right people, you have to ask the right questions. So Dr. Macias, for someone who does not want surgery, what are the non-surgical facelift options? There are a few non-surgical facelift options out there. Most of them nowadays use a type of radio frequency technology. Before, another one that used ultrasound technology was very popular. It was called Altera. We've seen less and less of that procedure recently as the radio frequency devices have taken off. The most common radio frequency devices that are used are one that is a microneedling device. One of the more popular ones is Morpheus 8 because it goes deeper than most of the others, than all the others actually. It goes down to seven millimeters and treats down to eight millimeters, and that's why the eight is after the, the title Morpheus. And that is a microneedling procedure that is done in the office with no downtime and tightens the skin pretty well. Obviously, it doesn't offer surgical results. None of the non-surgical treatments offer surgical results, but they do work to tighten some of the skin in people who have mild jowls, mild skin laxity of the neck, and mild marionette lines. The Morpheus 8, again, has no downtime and is really well tolerated in the office. Some numbing cream gets placed on the face. You can use Pronox, which is a laughing gas to help get through the procedure. And then the needles, there's 24 pins in the microneedling device and it shoots the pin into the face 
And then we control the depth and we can control it all the way down from two millimeters all the way down to eight, well, seven, uh, but it goes down to eight. And then we can tighten the skin with that device. Another one is face tight, which is a similar modality, but instead of it being needles that go through the skin, it's a little incision that's made in different parts of the face, similar to liposuction, and a cannula is placed underneath the skin. It's a little more invasive than the microneedling. It takes a little bit more time to do, and there's a little more swelling and recovery, but not a lot of recovery. It's still no real downtime, just a little swollen, a little more painful than Morpheus. But it does tighten the skin a little better and gets rid of some of the fat a little better in some of the regions when used in combination with Morpheus 8. Additionally, there's another radiofrequency device that's called Renuvion. It used to be called J-Plasma. And this one is used very commonly in liposuction and DVL procedures. I know that you guys talk about DVL quite often, so most of the listeners are probably very familiar with Renuvion. We actually haven't talked about Renuvion, so why don't you tell us about it? Yeah, awesome. Renuvion is one of the latest radiofrequency devices, but it uses a, a different technology where it injects helium. It's it's similar to, to FaceTight where or BodyTight or, or AccuTight, which are all the different radiofrequency devices made. It's just a probe that goes underneath the skin. This one is a probe that goes underneath the skin, but it, it also injects helium and then fires the radiofrequency. And when it injects the helium, it it sort of dissects the area that it's going to fire the radio frequency and causes a plasma reaction that tightens the skin and melts some of the fat. So we're using all these modalities as non-surgical treatments to tighten the skin in the neck and face areas okay. in a non-surgical fashion. You know, we can get about, let's say, at most half a facelift result. It's not going to give you a full facelift result. Most non-surgical treatments are not as effective as surgery. It's for people who either one, don't want to have surgery for whatever reason, are not good candidates for general anesthesia, or just don't want to lay on a table awake during the time that you can do a facelift under local anesthesia. They also may just not want the scars. They also may just not want to tell themselves that they're ready for a facelift yet. So they're good candidates for another procedure that might give them half the result with a lot less downtime. That's great. So my next question kind of goes into that of if their laxity goes beyond what can be fixed with non-surgical, what is the best age to have a facelift? We're finding that that age is actually younger than we used to think before. 40s? You know, it's it's not exactly an age, honestly. It's, it's a early jowling, early skin laxity, early marionette formation. Just not waiting till you look like your grandma. <laughs> but so you look like your mom, you know, you start seeing your mom in the mirror and you remember your mom had these marionette lines and these jowls or your dad, because, you know, this isn't just a procedure women have. It's also a procedure guys get. That's the time to sort of come in. You know, some women and guys at 40 need it. And some are mid 40s, some are late 40s, sometimes it's 50s. But the point is, it's not necessarily an age. It's when the early jowling, the early neck skin laxity starts to occur in the neck or the platysmal bands or the, the what are called the marionette lines, those start forming. And that usually happens in the mid 40s to you know early 50s. And that's the best time. We found that the results of a facelift last much longer if we start doing it earlier. And it's also obviously less dramatic and you don't 
change as much. That's less noticeable to your friends and family and colleagues and things like that. So it's preferable to do it as early as possible, not wait till you're in your 60s. Right. Okay. So how long does the effect of a facelift last, would you say? It's about 12 to 15 years is what we're seeing with modern facelifting techniques. You know, before we used to, well, well before, but I'm talking about before the 70s, they used to just take the skin and just cut off the extra skin and that was it. But wow. In the late 70s, we started talking about doing things with the musculature that's deep called the SMAS, the superficial muscular aponeurotic system. And since then, almost every plastic surgeon does the facelift, does something with the SMAS and it could be to placate it, it could be to dissect underneath it and pull it up. But the point is we do something with the SMAS layer and lift the SMAS layer so that it's not just the skin that's being pulled, but that the deeper muscular layer is being pulled. And then the skin is just redraped so that the scar looks the best possible. The latest trends are to do something called modified deep plane facelift, which is to, instead of separating the skin from the SMAS, lifting the skin and the SMAS together in one sort of composite, what we call flap, so they're together. And then just pulling that together and then removing the extra skin, which is one of the things that many of us that do modern facelifting do. Nice. Would you say, where are the facelift incisions hidden? I know we have an idea, but tell our listeners where they can expect to have an incision. They're usually hidden around the ear. So they're right in the creases of the ear. So right in front of the ear and then it goes back behind that part we call the tragus, which is the part that's right in front of the ear canal. So it kind of starts to hide back there so you don't really see that. And then it comes back around and comes in front of the earlobe and then back behind the ear right in the uh, fold in the back part of your ear. And then sometimes it can extend down your hairline a little bit on the back and maybe a little bit on the hairline on the front, depending on the skin laxity, how much skin needs to come off. That defines how much skin needs to be removed. So some people don't need a lot of skin removal and they're a great candidate for mini facelift. And that means the scar that we use would be much smaller, sometimes just on the back of the ear, sometimes just around the earlobe in the back of the ear. We limit how long that scar can be and, and that's dictated by how much skin needs to be removed. If you have a lot of skin laxity, then you need a little bit more length of scar in order to get rid of that much skin and lay the skin nicely. So it looks natural and, and, and inconspicuous. So that goes back to the younger we do it, right? The less laxity there is, the shorter the scar? Yeah, 100%. And then also what happens is the younger we do it also, the more that we build new collagen in the area that we did the surgery on, which also we know that the new collagen formation after surgery is a little stronger than the skin. So then the um, sort of layer was beforehand. So that can kind of keep the face from continuing to age. What I do see is that when people come back for their facelift at 12 to 15 years later is that they don't look as loose or as lax. They don't have as much of a jowl. They don't have as much loose skin in their neck or their marionettes as they did before their initial procedure. They tolerate less. So they want sort of a reset at that point before it gets to where it was before their first surgery. Nice. Do you recommend for patients to do the face and the neck at the same time? You know, the term facelift is kind of a misnomer. When we say facelift, most people think it's like brows down to the chin. And the reality is the facelift is from the cheeks, essentially, down to mid-neck. And a facelift 
always treats the neck. Really? So I... a, a good, yeah, a good, a good facelift should never ignore a neck. It does the cheek area. It does the jowls. It does the marionette. It does the neck. It does the patisma. That's a facelift. You know, Dr. Macias, I always like, you know, pointing things out that our patients could experience. And I've seen it from patients that I've had before where they'll get a quote and they get a quote for a facelift and a neck lift separately. And if they don't do one, they have like if they can't do the neck lift, if they can't afford the neck lift, they just do the facelift and they'll like cherry pick it. So what you're saying is it should never be cherry picked. It should always go together. Well, there's not never, I guess, but you there's a neck lift without a facelift. Oh, but okay. you really can't do a facelift without a necklace. So you could do an isolated necklace. So that is possible. You just can't do an isolated facelift without treating the neck. Hmm. Okay, good to know. So a necklace, like if someone has no jowls, no marionette lines, they just have a loose neck, skin, and some platysmal bands, then they're a good candidate for an isolated necklace. And that, yeah, that can be done. But, but if we're talking about a facelift, a facelift includes the neck. Okay, good to know. Can a facelift? But you could just opt for a facelift for a necklace. But if you need a facelift, if you've got the jowls and the marionette lines, and you offer just a necklace, then you're going to worsen the appearance of your jowls because now you've got a tight neck, and the jowls are still going to be there, and that's just not a good look. So I don't let honestly, I don't let patients cherry pick. I give them the best option, and you know, you do this or we don't do it because I don't think you're going to be happy. It's not going to look good for you to have this tight neck and these jowls still hanging there. So if they're a facelift candidate, we give them a facelift quote. If they're a necklace candidate, they get a neck lift quote. There's no cherry picking here because uh, I want them to have the best possible results. I agree. Can a facelift be performed while the patient is awake? I know you mentioned that just a few minutes ago. Yeah, they, they, it can be. You know, It's a little tough to do it while they're awake, especially for older individuals lying on a table for three and a half to four hours can be a little tough. You know, in a certain position, lying on your back, elbows start to hurt, knees start to hurt, back starts to hurt. So it can be a little tough and, you know, patients start to fidget a little bit towards the end of the case. So most patients opt for a little bit of sedation, IV sedation. When they don't want to go under general anesthesia, they're completely awake. I mean, they're sleepy. They're responsive. They follow commands. They'll turn their head to the right, to the left. They will, you know, be awake. It's kind of like when you do a colonoscopy and... Most of the patients that are getting facelifts are around the age of colonoscopy, so they're familiar with twilight for the colonoscopy procedure. So it's similar to that. You know, you don't remember it. It's comfortable, but you're awake and following commands throughout the whole procedure. Awesome. I do have this one question. I do have a lot of weight loss listeners, and I know one of the things for massive weight loss patients is they lose the fat padding in their face and it starts to droop. I know. you know, from seeing them that a lot of them want to either fill in with filler. And sometimes we have to, you know, have that conversation of this is beyond what filler can do. Do you combine your facelifts with a little fat grafting for those massive weight loss patients? Almost all patients actually give fat grafting to their face unless they already have a very full face and don't need it, which is quite rare because as we age, we lose volume to our face, not just with massive weight loss, but just the aging process itself. Val Ambrose is a a plastic surgeon who showed us that it's not just the scent of the face, it's also the volume loss as we age that leads to the, the appearance of an aged face. So most of us that now 
that do facelifts nowadays add some sort of fat grafting to portions of the face. It's usually the cheek area, which we call the mid face. It could be the marionette lines. It could be to the nasal labial folds, the temporal regions. And then another place that a lot of people don't think about is what we call the superior orbital rim or the upper eyelids. As we age, we also lose volume in the upper eyelid region and it starts to look sunken in or gaunt looking and that looks aged. If you look at a youthful upper eyelid, it's actually quite full in that region. So fat grafting to that region is a fantastic way of making the area look a lot more youthful. You know, with facelifts in combination, it's usually not just a facelift that's isolated. We usually do something else. It could be either a lip lift. It could be a lip graft in order to enhance the fullness of the lip. It can be upper eyelids, lower eyelids, brow lifts, and then they all get fat grafting. In addition to the fat grafting that I do for them, we also do lasers postoperatively in order to treat the skin quality as well. You know, we start with skin care beforehand to prep the skin. We do the facelift, and then on day five, we will do a broadband light treatment, which is called uh, which we call BBL, which is the best type of APL, uh, IPL on the market, intense pulse light on the market, to treat the browns and reds. And then we'll do a resurfacing laser as well at the same time in order to treat fine lines and wrinkles and texture of the skin on day five. So by the time they're done recovering at the two-week mark, they're recovered from the facelift itself and from the laser treatment. And they look brand new. <laughs> brand new baby yeah, skin. Look, I mean, not brand new, but definitely, you know, reset. Most people feel that they feel about 10 years younger. You know, some people come in with high school pictures and they're in their, in their 50s and they want to look like their high school <laughs> photograph. And, and that's, you know, unrealistic. And it would look odd if we actually tried to chase that. I think a real realistic goal and what most people say they feel is that they feel about 10 years younger. You know, so if you're in your... You know, mid forties to look like you're in your mid thirties. That's that's it. That's a win. And if you're in your fifties to look like your forties, definitely a win. And you know, they, like I said, every twelve to fifteen years, people come back and maybe do a little reset. And in the meanwhile, they have to maintain a good skincare regimen. A hundred percent. And then you know, you could still a lot of patients will maintain things like Morpheus treatments after their facelift to maintain the tautness of the skin, so they can sort of make it last a little longer and not have to go back and redo their facelift as soon. So there are things that you can do maintenance-wise to keep the tautness of the skin. Earlier, you were talking about lip grafting and lip lift. And I'd like for us to touch on what are patients' options for lip enhancement without filler? So lip enhancement without filler, there are surgical options. There was, uh, for a little while, a little popular lip Implant, which is a silicone implant placed in the lip, I don't suggest it. doesn't look natural, doesn't move natural. I've removed quite a few of them, so I, I wouldn't do that. More commonly, people are doing lip lifts, which are fantastic. They treat the length of the upper lip. As we age, the upper lip, the distance between the nose and the lip itself, that area is called the philtrum, and people refer to that as their lip as well, but that, that gets long longer as we age. And in order to shorten that, we can do a lip lift. And also, as we do the lip lift, we'll increase the volume or the show of the actual lip itself or the pink part of the lip. And do you do fat grafting at the same time? Or is fat grafting something that can be done later? 
So fat grafting is another thing that's done in addition to a lip lift. So lip lift is done to increase the volume of the upper lip and to decrease the, the distance of the philtrum or the that part between the nose and the lip. That's one way of augmenting the upper lip. If you want to augment both lips, fat grafting is one way of doing it. It was popular for a little while. One of the things about fat grafting to the lips, though, is that it's very, 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 very unpredictable. So fat grafting, the most predictable place is the buttocks. The breasts are even less predictable. About 50% of the fat lives in the breasts. In the lips, it's even less predictable than that. So because there's a lot of movement. In areas that there's a lot of movement, fat doesn't survive as well. So fat grafting can work, but you could end up with a couple sessions of fat grafting because it's so unpredictable. I, I prefer another type of grafting, which is smash flap or dermal grafting. So while I'm doing the facelift, I'll actually take a piece of that SMAS, the superficial muscular apneurotic system, remove a piece of that SMAS that I'm going to remove anyhow, and then use it as a graft where I tunnel it through the lips, the upper and the lower lip, in order to provide some volume for the lips. And that is a nice way of just giving a little more oomph to lips that are a little depleted with age. And that's a good a good option for people that don't need to decrease the filtral column length or the length of the that part of the lip between the nose and the lip itself. Awesome. So, okay, now what laser do you recommend for patients just for maintenance? I know there's there's so much on the market. There's hydrofacial, yeah. there's all types of, you know, things, but I know Well, hydrofacial, hydrofacial, you you mentioned hydrofacial, right? Before we go into that, I know that a lot of surgeons do not like these like, for example, Othera, if to for a patient to have Othera and then go in to have a facelift because it could be a little more difficult and other skin tightening lasers. Do you agree with that? It, I mean, I, it's a stuff that I've heard from surgeons, but I don't know if it's just every across the board or the ones that I heard it from. Yeah, I mean, it can make it a little more difficult, but I mean, it's so ubiquitous now and all my patients in the practice have these procedures done. So I don't find it to make it more difficult for me. I don't recommend people not get them. You know, same thing used to be said for non-surgical rhinoplasty. And, you know, I do a lot of rhinoplasty and I don't find a lot of my patients will convert from non-surgical to surgical. I don't find a huge issue with it. It does thicken the tissue a tiny bit, but I've had very nice results afterwards. So yeah, if someone wants to get a laser or a non-surgical treatment to their neck, I think that it can enhance the result honestly later because the skin will be pre-treated and, and tighter. It might make the dissection a little more difficult, but you know, it's nothing that I've encountered, not encountered before. You know, I do revision surgeries all the time. I do it on transgender patients who have had facial feminization surgeries. So it's a common occurrence nowadays. Do you do facial? I can never pronounce this word. This is one of those words I can't pronounce. Feminization. 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 Yeah, FFS surgery. I do some of it. Like I've done some brow facial, some brow reductions. I haven't done the full jaw stuff. It's not my primary strength. So mm-hmm. I just do the brow stuff. There are people out there, there are guys and girls out there, and you know, there's specialized centers who do just facial femme. But I have a, a large transgender population for breast and faceless. So I, I see them there and then I'll I'll do some of the sort of touch ups on certain things. But I, I don't do the jaws. I'll do the rhinoplasties, but uh yeah, that's not a large part of my practice. The actual facial feminization surgery itself. 
Okay. What between a facelift and a rhinoplasty, which one do you like to do more? I love rhinoplasties. I love seeing before and after rhinoplasties. I, I mean, I don't know. I love them both. They're both. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they're both fantastic. I mean, I love facelifts. Yeah, and it's a tough one to to pick answer because they're both they're both very difficult surgeries, and you know the stakes are high, as you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, because you can't hide it in clothing. So, yeah, I, right. I, I like them both equally. <laughs> Okay, so I want to, before I let you go and before before you get even busier than you already are, when our listeners go look for you on Instagram, they're going to find that you have a lot more bodywork pictures than what you have facial. And do you find it more difficult to get before and after picture release for online use with your facial patients? No doubt. It's, I actually found that very interesting at the beginning of my career that people were really willing to give me before and after photos of their labiaplasty and their breasts and things like that, and their buttocks. But I do their nose, same patient, but they don't want me to show their face. <laughs> I knew you were going to say I, that. I didn't, yeah, I didn't quite understand that at first, but now I, I, I kind of get it because the face is recognizable and the other stuff isn't. You know, That's in a right. of breasts, it's hard to tell whose is what. We blur tattoos and things like that, but I think that isn't as personal in a way that your as your face is. And then with these new facial recognition softwares that are coming out and things people could scour the internet for your face. So I think people are wary of giving permission for their face. And, and, you know, I'm in LA, so, you know, some people are well known and they don't want other people to know that they had their, their face done and up on TMZ. So exactly. It's, it's hard, a lot harder to get consent for facial procedure. I wanted to point that out for our listeners because I do get asked that question a lot. There's not that many before and after pictures for facelifts or for upper bluff or neck lift or things of the, you know, from the shoulders up. And I have, you know, I have to explain it that it's not that we're not trying to get, you know, before and after pictures. It's that we have to respect our patient's privacy always, number one. And if they don't allow us to use their pictures online or, you know, for marketing material, we don't have pictures to use and it's really out of our hands as much as we try and we're, you know, we can blur their eyes or we can do different things. It's your identity. Your face is your identity. And, you know, we don't push our patients very hard to let us use their pictures if they're resistant. You know, respect. Yeah, and, you know, there's other surgeons that just do face and they don't do any body stuff. So if they just do face, then all their photos are going to be face, right? So that makes it sort of look like they do more per se because it's all face stuff but that's all they're doing because they're not board certified plastic surgeons they're facial plastic surgeons they were ENTs who went and did a one year facial plastic surgery fellowship and so all they do is facial work they do rhinoplasties faceless plastic things like that so they're you know the before and after gallery is just that so it doesn't get lost in the sea of other other procedures that a board certified plastic surgeon who does the whole gamut sort of you have to look through all of the pictures Exactly. So, okay, now before I let you go, <laughs> tell me, what was your experience going through the whole process to become a plastic surgeon as a Mexican-American? You mentioned a few, you know, or Latino plastic surgeons in your area, but I know it was probably a little more difficult. Yeah, I mean, I will say that I went to a high school that wasn't one of the better performing high schools in the LA metropolitan area. It's called Nogales High School in La Puente, California. 
and it didn't prepare me the greatest for college. Luckily, you know, I did well enough on the SAT and on the on my grades because I I had an aptitude that I was able to you know get a good GPA and a good score on the SATs and get into UCLA. And at UCLA is where I I sort of figured out that medicine was going to be my route and. I was lucky to be involved with a few groups that had some mentors that, because I didn't know any doctors, uh, there were no doctors in the family that had some mentors that were in medical school that helped me through the process. I did a summer program called uh, UCLA Prep, which was very instrumental in me meeting other mentors and figuring out how to study well for the test that was very important to get in a medical school called the MCAT. And historically, or just in general, people of Latino descent, even if they're born in the United States and fully schooled in the United States tend to do worse on that test, but I happen to do quite well uh, thanks to my mentorship and my studies that people stressed how important it was. So I, I got into UCLA Med School and UCLA Med School was fantastic, great school. And I mean, honestly, aside from the historical things and knowing that, you know, as a group, we tend to underperform and it's harder for us. I, I don't think I, I personally ran into the issues as far as sort of someone not trying to help me out. As a matter of fact, I think I ran into some people that were trying to help and to make sure that I got mentored and made sure that, you know, they saw that I had the aptitude and I had the work ethic and I had the, I, I don't know what the other word I'm looking for is, but, you know, potential, the, the want, the- yeah, the potential to do something with in the field of medicine. So people were really, really sort of willing to help. And and the mentors didn't come just from the Latino community. I had some really great mentors from, from every, you know, from everywhere. So I definitely was involved with groups called the Chicanos Latinos Community Medicine, Latino Medical Student Association. I was actually, you know, the president of, of the organization. And I, I was attempting to help others sort of follow in the tracks and, and help. Uh, but I always stress that it, it isn't just the Latino community helping the Latino community out. And that there's, you know, not necessarily someone trying to keep us from being there, but that we have to figure out, you know, the resources that maybe others have that we didn't have because we didn't have the connections. We didn't have another family member who's a doctor or we didn't have the... Even a family member that went to college. College. Yeah, that's true. I didn't have that either. So, you know, that's how I got lucky. I ended up in the UCLA and then I started getting into the bright circles. So... Those kind of things and just providing opportunities and and mentorship so that individuals who don't have a pipeline or don't have a a resource can have a resource so they can ask those questions like what how important is MCAT? What do I have to do to do well in MCAT? You know, what's the process like? All those questions are very important to answer and to see someone that sounds like them, looks like them, came from the same background, that had some struggles but overcame them, also is inspirational for them to to continue on on their journey or to even think it's possible to even start the journey, quite honestly. Because if you don't see someone that you can identify with or know someone that you can identify with in in that position, you don't think it's possible. I 100% see it. I know for me, it's very special when I come across first-generation Mexican-Americans and they're doing really great and they're doing well because I know me personally... I was not sat down at the kitchen table and helped with my homework very much. And I hear that very often from other, you know, girls my age or men my age that 
are very similar to me that they didn't have help either. Yeah, when I was in high school, you know, my high school counselor said, you know, you should take wood shop, you should take autos, so you can get a job afterwards. And I was like, well, I'm thinking about going to college. She's like, well, I don't know. You know, it's kind of, you know, I look back and I'm like, really? Wow. You're kidding me, you know? Like, I, I had obviously had pretty decent potential, I had good grades. I was studying, picked SAT, but I just wasn't mentored. It was actually this is a great story. It was a high school teacher. Mrs. Waska was her name. Shout and she, out. <laughs> she made me, yeah, Mrs. Waska, she made me apply to college. I had joined the Marine Corps at that point and I went to the Marines before I went to college. But I can't say she was disappointed that I joined the Marines, but she wanted me to go to college. She saw the potential. And this is one of those mentors I tell you about that, you know, Mrs. Waska saw it and she said, you need to apply to college. Bring me applications, apply. I said, okay, where do I apply? She said, wherever you want. I said, okay, USC, USC sounds expensive because it's private. Let me apply to the uh, UC. And at that time, she said, well, UCLA is better anyway. So at the, you know, in the 90s, UCLA was a really good college that was far superior and it was a lot less expensive. So to appease her, I filled out one application to one school, UCLA, because she made me. She made me take it to her, made me fill it out. She made me mail it. Back then, we had to mail things. So I mailed it in snail mail, and I got accepted. Wow, and I got chills. Yeah, I got accepted to UCLA because she made me apply. I then tried to get out of my Marine Corps contract because I realized what a big deal that was. <laughs> and the Marines said they would let me out, but he also said that he didn't think it would be a big deal if I reapplied and just told them that I got in once before and I went to serve my country in the Marine Corps and I wanted in again. And I didn't go the first time because I went to go serve my country. He didn't think that would hurt me, which made a lot of sense. So I did the Marine Corps and the Marine Corps. And then I, I reapplied while I was in the Marines. And that time I was a little scared I wasn't going to get into UCLA. So I actually applied to UCI and UCLA just in case. Got into both, but chose to go to UCLA. And, you know, later I, when I was in college, I had sort of an exposure. I don't know why I took an anatomy class, but I took an anatomy class in high school because I thought it was interesting and cool. And we dissected a cat and, you know, it's kind of stuck with me. So later when I got into med school, I, I thought, you know, I'm going to go back. And his name was Mr. Holdridge, the anatomy class teacher. So I thought, I'm going to go back to Nogales High School. I'm going to go thank Mrs. Waska and Mr. Holdridge for their, for him inspiring me to medicine and anatomy and her for, you know, making me apply to college and getting into school and getting me down this path. So I go to the high school, I go, you know, the front office and I'm like, hey, you know, I'm Lisa Macias, I graduated in 92. I'd like to speak Mr. Holdridge and Mrs. Waska because they were instrumental for me getting to med school. I'm getting, I started med school, you know, in October. And the girl giggles. I'm like, don't we? I graduated a long time ago. Why should giggle? And she goes, well, Mrs. Waska and Mr. Holdridge are now Mr. and Mrs. Holdridge. Oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah, so my two huge mentors or people who helped me in high school get to where I'm at also found each other. <laughs> wow, and, that's and amazing. And and so when I went to go talk to them, it was it was, it was really cool. And Mr. Holdridge and Mrs. Waska had me come talk to their kids, and it, it was it was um, wow. It was nice to, to that thank them. That is the way to end this episode. That's amazing. I it's wow how, you know, destiny happened and you got led down the right path and they got led to each other. <laughs> okay, Dr. Macias, for our listeners, 
I always like to ask at the end of the episode, if it was your sister or your friend or your, you know, your mom or your wife, and you were giving them a tip or a piece of advice, you know, as they embark on this journey for their surgery, what's that one piece of advice that you would give them? Well, if they're looking for a facelift and they're not coming to me, they should look for a board certified plastic surgeon and look through their before and after gallery, talk to patients that have had their surgery with them before to make sure that they're going to get the one, the result that they're hoping for. And, and if they don't, if there's a complication or what have you, that the, the surgeon is available to them to help them through that journey. You know, most of the time these surgeries are very successful and, you know, that's why we do so much of it. But every now and then there's a little hiccup, unfortunately. And, you know, you want to know that your surgeon is not going to abandon you and that your surgeon is going to help you through that. If a surgeon says they've never had a complication, they're lying. 100%. Um, and, and you want to know that that surgeon is available and nearby and you can get to them and accessible, at least if you flew to them to see surgery, but at least they'll answer their calls. You could do virtual stuff and, you know, just have the surgeon who's going to help you through that process. I, you know, some of the patients that have had complications are some of my best referral sources, interestingly enough, because, you know, we got to know each other quite well with the frequent follow-ups and I got them through it and they know that, you know, I'm going to be there with them to make sure that we get the best possible outcome no matter what. I 100% agree with you. I actually made a post about this on Instagram just a few weeks ago and the topic was, you know, complications are going to happen. And this it was actually not even for, you know, a piece of advice. It was the difference between a cosmetic surgeon and a board certified plastic surgeon. And yeah, what my take was, was like, these plastic surgeons can, you know, turn your tummy into your breast. They can handle any complication that comes their way with a procedure that they're doing for you. A cosmetic surgeon, and I just heard this, you know, just a few days ago from a patient who had surgery with the cosmetic surgeon, had a complication, wasn't helped very much was told by the surgeon that he would take care of it, you know, once she was healed. And then when she came back, was told, you know what, this is beyond my scope of expertise and you need to see a board certified plastic surgeon. Yeah, a real plastic surgeon. <laughs> yeah, a real yeah, plastic it, surgeon. It's, it's crazy to me that in the United States this occurs that, you know, people can sort of call themselves these things. And I mean, you don't even have to call yourself. You don't have to do cosmetic surgery. You don't have to do the, the cosmetic surgery sort of one-year fellowship and do their, their non-ABMS board and, and be sort of quote-unquote board-certified cosmetic surgeon by the American Board of Cosmetic Surgery to practice cosmetic surgery. You could be a cardiologist who decides to open up their own surgery center, give yourself privileges, and then start doing plastic surgery. There's OBGYNs, there's cardiologists, there's family practice doctors, there's actually even a PA I just heard of recently that works in an office with a family practice doctor who I'm doing the revision on the patient. She's like, well, this is my doctor. And I look him up and he's a PA. Oh and my God. He's a doctor and he's a, he's a PA doing liposuction and fat grafting to a buttocks. So it's, it's astonishing. Revision I was doing, but yeah. It, it's astonishing. You really, really have to do your research as to what the credentials are. There's a, a website called the American Board of Medical Specialties, ABMS. The ABMS is the gold standard of Association of Medical Boards, and they, they accredit the boards that give doctors the board certification. Within it, there's you know, the Board of Orthopedic Surgery, the Board of 
Surgery, which is general surgery, the board of the American Board of Plastic Surgery, the American Board of Otolaryngology, all the different boards that are the gold standard of boards are on there. And you could look up any doctor on abms.org. So if you look me up, for instance, you put in Luis Macias, California, I think you have to put in the state. I'm the only Luis Macias, I think, if you don't put the only Macias. No, I think there's, there's a few other Macias, but I'm the only Luis Macias. There's a neurosurgeon Macias somewhere. And there's a female. She's awesome. You type in Luis Macias and it'll show you that I have two boards, the American Board of Surgery and the American Board of Plastic Surgery. So it'll tell you. And you look up some of these people that people have had surgery with and it says family practice. And you're like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I've talked about it on previous episodes. I've asked my listeners, Dr. Megan, who was on a previous episode, she mentioned that the patients who are being taken advantage of are the patients who don't have the, the funds, you know, to file lawsuits and fight for things that have been done wrong to them or, you know, if they got hurt or botched or abandoned, you know, post-op, they're not the people who would start a movement to get regulation on these types of things. And I think there should be a movement for more regulation on this. You know, we've tried. As a matter of fact, in the state of California, the American Board of Cosmetic Surgery tried to quote unquote, ABMS equivalency for their board to try to sort of solidify their expertise as cosmetic surgeons. And the plastic surgery societies fought it back successfully this time. We've been unsuccessful with other ones, but this time we were able to fight this one back. The the board tends to be very, they don't like turf wars in, in, in medicine. As a matter of fact, you know, when you, a doctor gets his license or her license, our license says physician and surgeon. There's no separate surgeon medical license. Every doctor gets the same license. So an ER so doctor can get... Their license says physician and surgeon. And a family practice doctor, a neurologist, a cardiologist, a... You name the a psychiatrist is a physician and surgeon. Wow. I had no idea. So a, psychiat- a psychiatrist could legally perform surgery. A psychiatrist perform neurosurgery. So wow. the reason the, the reason it doesn't usually happen is that hospitals are usually the gatekeepers. And hospitals, most of the time, not every hospital, believe it or not, but most hospitals require board certification to practice in that field. But not all do. Some of the more rural hospitals, some of the less desirable hospitals. I, I, the ones that the need the doctors have, to come in. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Some of the hospitals that, that don't have high paying patients populations or what have you will take on doctors that don't have board certification. And so even going to a hospital isn't 100% safe You know my, uh, that you're going to get a board certified professional. I want to, you know, bring this up because it's confusing a little bit to me because I've done, I've had to fill out and help doctors that I've worked with, with their hospital credentialing. And one of those forms that's always in there is they have to get graded or recommended by a fellow surgeon. Yeah. I wonder, is that not like the standard everywhere where are they getting letters letters of recommendation from other surgeons that are like them? I just it, it is, but those are pretty much formalities, quite honestly. It's tough to evaluate another surgeon. They're mostly gatekeeping tools to make sure that Well I know like part of it is like too many people get into that hospital system. Well I think like <laughs> on one of the forms people at the hospital so that you can get in kind of deal. Oh, okay. Because like a club, you know, (laughs) because I remember on one of those sheets also 
when they're doing the evaluation, it's like they have like specific proceed, like listed things that they've witnessed them do or that they know they do. And like you grade them, you know, do you recommend? Yeah, them I mean, honestly, it's mostly a formality. Um, it's just paperwork they do for the hospitals. I think the board certification is the best way of doing it. And that's why most hospitals require it. And as I was saying before, the gatekeepers are usually the hospitals and that they, most of them require it. But the issue is that anyone could open a, their own surgery center and do whatever they want with it. So my surgery center, if I wanted to let non-board certified surgeons do plastic surgery in it, I could. Uh, I could let anyone do it, you know, anyone uh, that is licensed to do it. So that would be any physician that has their license could do plastic surgery without zero training. Wow. I mean, I could on the job train them or, you know, what have you, or they could watch YouTube, which many of them do. Wow. So, so that's, that's the problem is that once you open your little center, you get to dictate the rules. I do a lot of revision surgery in town because of, you know, these little centers that pop up. Wow. Well, at least we're talking about it, right? At least it's out in the open. It's we're talking about it as the podcast grows, more women will hear us, you know, because it's it's a very common topic that comes up when I am doing episodes because my board certified plastic surgeons that are work so hard, you know, to be able to do this successfully are like, what the hell? That well, it's about safety, <laughs> you know. It's about safety, and that's what the boards are about. The test for the boards isn't a results test. It's a safety test. They just want to make sure that the surgeons that they certify are going to go out to the community and provide safe surgery for the patient population. And that's what all those tests are designed. To be a board-certified plastic surgeon, you have to finish an accredited program that trained you on plastic surgery, and and your attending sign off on you that you're a safe surgeon. Then you have to take a written test, which is very comprehensive. And pass that saying that you know a threshold amount of plastic surgery in order to deal with complications and to deal with things in plastic surgery that are common and some that are very uncommon, but that you might have to encounter. And then once we're done, we have to collect cases for nine months. They review our case log and then pick five of our cases to go and nitpick through the case and make sure that we're doing things that are safe with our patients. And also, we answer uh, 12 other unknown questions on scenarios that are common in the community to make sure that we're going to treat people well. And people just have to do their homework. Look at the American Board of Medical Specialties, abms.org. Look up your surgeon. Make sure they're board certified and, and, and what they're board certified in. Absolutely. That's uh, the best way that you can really make sure that what you are looking for in your surgeon, which is experience, professionalism, attention to detail, attention to you, you're getting all of that with a board certified plastic surgeon and you can see and you know you're going to be in good hands. Thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Macias. It's been a pleasure. We learned a lot today and maybe you can come back on the show and we can do like a rhinoplasty episode. That would be awesome. You're very welcome. I'd, I'd love to. Rhinoplasty's got so many nuances from just the primary rhinoplasty to secondary tertiary rhinoplasties with rib cartilage graft. And uh, it's a very uh, fun topic to discuss. See, I told y'all when they're passionate about the subject, you get this stuff. You get the good stuff. <laughs> All right, Dr. Macias, we'll talk to you again soon. 
Oh, wait, before we go, before we go, I almost forgot. Where can our listeners find you? They can find me on our website at aestheticmdr.com, on Instagram, aestheticmdr. My Instagram is Dr. Luis Macias. That's Dr. Luis, uh, Luis, L-U-I-S, M-A-C-I-S, Dr. Luis Macias. We also have a TikTok. AestheticMDR has a TikTok. Had some pretty cool viral videos on there. So that's AestheticMDR. Nice. And your phone number? Your office phone number? Our phone number. Oh, don't tell me you don't know it. Don't even think about our phone numbers, huh? (laughs) 310-574-2103. We go straight to the socials in 2022. No longer even think about phone numbers. I'm surprised I even discussed the website. (laughs) (laughs) I know. But you know what? I'm kind of old school. I like to call the office. I like to call and I like to talk to somebody and, you know, get the vibe here, you know, hear their phone etiquette here, like everything. So I'm old school. I like the phone number. So let me repeat your phone number. 310-574-2103. Yeah. And, you know, for those that don't that don't like to do it that way, we text. So you could just text the number as well. I'd say half of our patients love to text with us and they just text us that number and we text back. The other half like to talk to someone. Beautiful. Text is perfect. If you are at work, you can still schedule your appointment. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You could talk about things that you don't want your co-workers to know about. Exactly. All right. I love it. Thank you, Dr. Macias. We'll talk to you again soon. You're welcome. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. I would like to end this episode with a huge thank you to all of our listeners. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe to Big Butts No Lies Podcast and follow us on Instagram at Big Butts No Lies Podcast. If you have a topic you want me to cover, please send it to the DM. If you know anyone on their plastic surgery journey, be sure to recommend them the show. You can also visit us on our website, bigbuttsnolies.com. You'll see the online surgical recovery store. We're adding new items all the time. If there's something you think I need to have on there, send me a DM. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget, new episodes every Monday. I'll see you then.